0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift
1: off Falcon 9. Falcon Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the SpaceQ podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Don't Let Go Canada Coalition. For sixty years. Canada has been a space leader. We help build the International Space Station and land astronauts on the moon. Back on Earth, we leverage our space capabilities every day to push boundaries in medicine, communications, and environmental monitoring. The clear vision and commitment of previous governments helped drive this forward, but now, our country faces a decision point, and we need to act. Please visit don'tletgocanada.ca and join the campaign to help us keep innovation, jobs, and our best and brightest in Canada. The universe needs more Canada. Don't let go, Canada. Happy New Year and welcome to the second episode of our three-part Winter Series Talks. Our regular interviews will resume on January 17th, where we'll discuss Canada's Arctic with a focus on security and space. In this episode, we hear from MDA's Paul Fulford on Canadian deep space exploration robotics for improved capability, utilization, and flexibility on a cislunar habitat. The talk is introduced by Daniel Ray of the Canadian Space Agency, who also provides an important conclusion. The talk was part of NASA's Future in Space Operations weekly teleconference series from mid-2018. NASA has invited Canada to participate in its next big space program, a return to the Moon, as part of the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway Program. While many in the Canadian space community support this effort, including the Canadian Space Agency, and though it is likely that Canada will participate, that final decision has yet to be announced by the government. It's clear from the current administration in the White House and leaders at NASA that the time to return to the Moon is now. And it won't be just government going. The US is pushing the commercial sector to be a partner and to invest their money as well. For Canada, being a part of the program means a seat at the table in what happens at the Moon. Canada is looking to contribute robotic arms, lunar rovers, AI software, medical knowledge and equipment, and likely other technologies. You'll want to listen to the whole talk to understand how important robotics are to the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway program, how the concept has evolved, and how much we'll rely on robotics. The presentation visuals are available in the story that accompanies this episode on SpaceQ.ca. Listen in.
2: Okay, Daniel, Paul. Take over. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's Daniel Ray speaking. It's a pleasure to to be here today, um, speaking to this esteemed working group, uh, the FISA working group. I think these are very exciting times for human spaceflight exploration. Um, the agencies of the world are coming together with a, a common destination for the Moon as a stepping stone to Mars. And as Kathy presented uh, to this group a few weeks ago, uh, Canada's uh, uh very happy to be part of the of the agencies working on on that today. So going to slide two. Um, the topic of the presentation today is a, is our concept for the uh, the cislunar gateway and the role that uh, robotics can play there and the importance of that role. Uh, so, What Canada is doing currently is uh, looking at deep space exploration, robotics, an entire uh, end-to-end system that uh, Paul will be describing. And we're also looking at uh, how to improve the efficiency of that system, making it smarter, more autonomous. And we are very actively involved in trying to uh, define also standard robotic interfaces for this system, so we've been prototyping and doing concept studies there. Slide three uh, is some of the background also leading up to this work today that we're talking about. Um, since DEXTER launched in 2008, we've been very active with different concept studies and prototyping activities. I'd like to take the opportunity here to mention that Yves uh, uh, Goncier at CSA has been the mission manager for all of this work, and he normally would be presenting right now, but he's on uh, on leave this week, so you'll have to do with me. Um so I won't spend too much time on this slide and go right to slide 4 which I think uh, is quite interesting we we have here a nice summary of uh the heritage that Canada has in space robotics um we can see the evolution uh for some of the fundamental parameters for our different Canadarms um and some highlights so we uh, I was quite actively involved with with uh, Dexter uh, since 2000, and um, be happy that uh, the system is working as well as it is today. We see that uh, we have very high high TRLs, and looking at uh, Canadarm3 and the Exploration Dextrous Arm system, uh, we haven't done any, any environmental testing yet of, of the novelty there. Um, we're at relatively low TRL. Some of the features that we're going to be bringing forward are going from the active compliance capability that we have today on orbit for uh, the very fine motion that Dexter is able to to perform to insert and extract orbital replacement units on the space station. We're taking that one step further with a system that will have situational awareness that will be able to. Um, collaborate with crew located close by in a safe way, in a very autonomous way. Uh, Also, we uh, I guess I personally regret the the amount of EVA that was required to install our robotic systems and maintain them. So one of our mission requirements now is to have the system self-repairable, able to take itself apart, put parts inside to be repaired by the crew, and not have to do a very costly and dangerous EVA just to repair a robotic system or install it. So, the next chart, page 5, uh, provides a bit more additional uh, information on the evolution of the capabilities that uh, we envision uh, are required for an effective and efficient system on the Gateway and our vision for Canadarm3 and the, uh, the small dextrous arm. Where we see that Canadarm2 brought uh, a capability to use tools and uh, we demonstrated this with a nom- not only a nominal suite of tools, but some very extraordinary tools that Goddard brought uh, to the station with the refueling mission. Uh, we demonstrated how uh, robotic operators on the ground are able to safely operate the system uh, on orbit with ground control. Uh, we have a two-millimeter precision with Dexter and uh, automatic force moment accommodation that works extremely well, enabling tasks that um, safety-critical tasks that weren't envisioned from the get-go, um, these are all maintained, and we add to this now the capability to self-deploy, to reconfigure and get repaired on orbit. The system, to be autonomous, needs situational awareness. And the autonomy we're looking at is not only from an operations perspective, but from a a planning perspective, where the operator now will hopefully be able to use uh, task-based plans that get derived into commands for the the robotic system. To enable all of this, NASA has been very visionary in in driving standards for the gateway. And there have been a number of working groups international working groups for the past couple of years, putting together standards. Canada has been chairing the robotic working group, and all of these standards are available on the, uh, the public website, international deep space standards all one word, dot com. So uh, I hope this sets, sets the stage for uh, Canada's background and aspirations. For deep space robotics and the, the context for the presentation today. I'd like to hand it over now to, to Paul to talk about the current concept for the gateway and all the capabilities that uh, I think are required.
0: Thank you, Dan. And, and uh, thank you uh, to, to the FISO group for inviting us. It's a great opportunity to present. So I'm on slide six for the title Deep Space Exploration Robotics. And would like to draw your attention back to the title and and this one image where robotics and autonomy uh, form uh, building blocks or or key capabilities uh, that can evolve or allow for flexibility and adaptability of an overall mission. Um, A lot of it is inherent in its own capability in terms of of just reach and, and having a manipulator of a certain length that can reach a certain distance inherently has flexibility in terms of what it can do. Moving on to slide 7 is more of a pictorial table of contents in terms of key capabilities for DS6R in terms of support to science payloads, inspection, assembly and reconfiguration, support to EVA operations and maintenance and repair, and, and I will expand on on each of these topics in the following slides. Um, moving on to slide eight, is an overview of DSXR. So if you recall from, from Dan's table earlier on, the, the large arm, which is situated in the middle of the graphic, is roughly half the size of the manipulator that's currently operating on the International Space Station. Um, so that is, that is the primary arm. It has seven degrees of freedom. It has the same mobility capabilities as, as does the manipulator on the International Space Station. It can walk end over end like an inchworm. What can work in conjunction with that or on its own is what we call the exploration dexterous arm or the XDA, which is the smaller one that you can sort of see pointing up from one of the ends of the manipulators. It is also a seven-jointed manipulator. It can also walk end over end. It has more dexterous tasks and or, or capabilities, and it has learned or it's evolved from the SPDM or what's now called the Dexter on the ISS. So Dexter has, has a main body and two 7-degree-of-freedom manipulators, and we've learned from that experience, and we're proposing currently to have one. Um, some of the early concepts has this small arm um, not only to have the ability to, to walk around from grapple fixture to grapple fixture, but can it can also walk up and down the length of a large manipulator as needed. Uh, given the uh, reduced uh, mass and volume constraints and some of the work that we've been doing over the years, we have done a functional uh, reallocation, so off to the left of both the the small arm and the large arm is something called a free-flyer capture tool, which is really a derivative of the end-effectors that are currently on the large manipulator, on the ISS, or the one that was on the Canadarm on the shuttle. And so as opposed to carrying that that large aperture or or that that large volume around, uh, we've decided to make it a tool uh, to support free-flyer capture operations, and when it's not required, it would reside on a tool caddy, which you can see in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, We've also allocated um, a tool called a dexterous adapter in the event that the small or exploration dexterous arm, the smaller one, is not available, and and those reasons will come clear shortly. There's also a dexterous adapter that has uh, force and moment sensors to, to help the larger arm conduct Uh, more dexterous operations as the need arises and there's also a lunar sample tool that um, I'll expand upon and it's an interface tool um, that is conceptual right now based with uh, lunar samples that could be returned from the moon and the Uh, the tool caddy is expandable can also serve as an an external science platform where science payloads can be um, placed, accommodated, pointed, serviced, and deployed. And then in the purple text are the standard robotic interfaces that that Dan was referring to that are all part of the current um, ongoing international partner robotic interface standard. So there's a traditional grapple fixture, the free flyer grapple fixture in the upper left. In the lower right is what's now called a low-profile grapple fixture. Um, over the years, we've learned from from a lot of people who incorporate these grapple fixtures that they need to be uh, simpler, smaller, lower profile, and less expensive, and that is being taken into account. And then in the box in the bottom left, there's a large ORU interface to carry things equivalent to the size of uh, battery boxes on the ISS. Um, smaller ORU interfaces and ORU interfaces that can transfer fluid.
3: Can I ask a question? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. This is Gordon Ressler. On the the end of the arm is the dexterous grapple fixture. Is that the equivalent of the tool changer? Is that what that is? Uh,
0: It it is the new end effector. Sorry. Uh, The dexterous grapple fixture is is the fixture and the end effector.
3: So there is a a a, a, change, a tool changing capability that's upstream of that. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. Thank you. I'm now moving on to slide nine. Just uh, speaking to some of the uh, capabilities. So for inspection, repair, and logistics. Um, The way this system is being planned is to have grapple fixtures in the appropriate locations around the gateway such that it can inspect all exterior surfaces and manipulate payloads and offer them to and from um, an equipment airlock such that payloads can be brought inside the gateway as required and some of the payloads include elements of the DSXR system and that will be shown shortly. Uh, on to slide 10, uh, the title is Off Nominal is the New Nominal. Uh, this is a key point in in terms of adaptability, flexibility and reconfigurability, so to speak um, and what we've learned through the shuttle program and the ISS is that there's a lot of contingency operations that are unplanned. And having the right tool in one's toolbox to deal with contingencies appears to be quite essential. So 44% of the 91 shuttle flights required contingency ops. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, the number one operation was just to do inspection, just to acquire information and better understand the environment to allow both crew and ground operations to make the appropriate decisions. So uh, contingency ops that used uh, the robotics um, is for direct repair to transport crew, but predominantly for inspection. And in the bottom right-hand corner um, is an image of just one end of the uh, Canadarm on the shuttle with an inspection boom that was added later on to support shuttle return to flight that would allow for inspection of the shuttle tiles and uh, leading uh, wing edges uh, to make sure that everything was was fine for the shuttle to return to Earth. Moving on to slide 11. Um, so robotics offer uh, planners the ability to reduce crew exposure. So, So having the, the first look and having a tool or a system outside the gateway that um, provides additional information, be it optical or or other form of sensor, and it allows for the replacement of of equipment that's robotically compatible. And the robotics are also there to provide maintenance during untended periods. And one way that that can be emulated and to punctuate what, what Dan said earlier on, the DEXTER operations are are uh, typically 100% ground controlled, and often they're done in periods where where the crew are asleep. So, uh, the ability to conduct uh, maintenance and and manipulation around the gateway um, during untended periods has has been proven out time and again on the International
3: Space Station. Uh,
0: Moving on to slide 12, uh, with respect to self-repair. Uh, in the center of the image, uh, just to get everyone oriented, is the large manipulator arm. And the smaller manipulator arm uh, is holding on to the end effector, and there's a risk cluster. And the separation plane is a is a robotically compatible uh, risk separation plane that uh, is currently under development right now. And the idea being that the further away... Uh, from Earth we explore, uh, the more self-reliant um, we need to be, and the available resources are also limited. So resources in terms of crew being able to go outside on, on EDA to the service manipulator, uh, even the level of sparing. So the current plan is to break the arm up into components that can fit through an equipment airlock and brought, be brought inside Uh, the gateway for inspection and and or repair and servicing and going forward in the future our recommendation is to have um, an international partner derived common set of tools and a lot of the repairable elements would be designed and developed for maintenance and repair and the images on the left um, just to show uh, real examples are the SPDM or Dexter servicing um, Canadarm2 or, or SSRMS? So both the, the top and, and bottom images are doing um, ORU replacement of our cameras on the large manipulator. Um, moving on to slide uh, 13 with respect to capture berthing and reconfiguration. Uh, this is also a, a relatively common activity on the International Space Station, and DSXR could provide the capability to berth or unberth uh, visiting vehicles as well as relocate. Um, just for, for nomenclature, um, in our environment, we, we consider berthing and unberthing, um, basically controlled docking via manipulator, uh, versus two visiting vehicles coming together would be... Would be uh, term, docking. Moving on to slide 14, so for free flyer capture, uh, some of the benefits that, uh, that are that are interesting, and, and interesting in the context, again, of limited resources, so the further away from Earth we go, the fewer the resources we have available, and we've done a number of studies over the years, uh, and here's some of the findings. So, uh, the reduction in collision um, loads between two docking interfaces uh, ultimately means a reduction in mass if one were to go with berthing only. Uh, but the ability to berth with robotic manipulators also provides a backup for for that docking, so it, it can also reduce docking mass. So not only to take care of the loads, but any of the other. Uh, features necessary for direct dock-to-dock, having a manipulator, um, and knowing that the docking uh, or the birthing will take place via manipulation uh, has the opportunity to reduce mass. Moving on to slide 15.
2: Does it have a uh, measurable uh, reduction in shock and vibration to protect experiments that are ongoing?
0: Or is it about so, the same reduction? In, in, so shock compared to, to what other method? Compared to docking. If you berth a big vehicle, do you have less shock and vibration than if you uh, dock it? I uh, Yes, you do. The the relative amount I, I don't have uh, on hand right now.
1: Okay.
0: Thank you. Um, other attributes are once you have a station together, um, by using a manipulator to reconfigure that station, um, by you maintain a physical contact at all times. That provides some level of assurance, and it also does not consume propellant to, to reconfigure And another interesting finding is that the birthing interfaces, depending on how they are reconfigured, if they are set up or reliant upon birthing, uh, could allow for larger openings or aperture, and therefore could allow for um, larger components or larger logistic elements to be brought
3: up to the gateway. Uh, Question? Uh Yes. for free-flyer capture, it's my understanding, I, I could be wrong, that the arm is controlled from the space station during free-flyer capture, is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Given that uh, the, the gateway will be frequently unmanned, is there uh, the intention to develop uh, an, an automated, uh, uh, locally controlled uh, docking approach?
0: Uh, Yes, there is, and in fact, um, it's been demonstrated as part of um, DARPA Orbital Express. So, so MDA was uh, involved in DARPA's Orbital Express mission, and uh, autonomous uh, free flyer capture uh, was conducted during that time, and and yes,
3: it is part of our um, autonomy enhancement. Thank you. Uh, moving
0: on to slide uh, 16, um, again, just speaks to, to the mission-level utility and knowing that there's manipulators on board that allow decisions to evolve over time. Uh, it's actually really difficult to, to quantify that value, but we've seen time and again that it's been quite important with contingency operations and with the view that the view you can see here with uh, the rearranging of the ISS through its evolution. So there's all kinds of reasons for change. Uh, different partners coming and going, different technical developments, changes in direction. But but knowing that things can be reconfigured, I think, is of high value. And just to adjust plans over time, as opposed to being able to foresee exactly how everything will, will unfold in the future, um, I think is an important asset. Moving on to slide 17, EVA support, uh, so even though we are, are baselining the fact that we would do self-repair and that we do not require uh, EVA support, uh, we are still keeping as an important design reference mission the ability to transport crew. Uh, Canada Arm and the Canada Arm 2 have been uh, manipulating and transporting crew um, for decades now, and these are just some images of, of the types of operations that can occur. And then moving on to slide 18, uh, there's, a, there's a pie chart that, that shows uh, shuttle operations that uh, required robotics, which is roughly 70%, and for viewing, 13%. And what it was able to offer was a a stable EVA work platform that gave reach to locations on the ISS that were otherwise inaccessible. And so the image on the bottom left is showing um, Canadarm2 with the shuttle inspection boom and a crew member going out to do repair of the solar rays, which... um, Would otherwise not be accessible and then the system is just a reliable and safe mobility aid and also increases uh, or reduces EVA timelines for transferring around. Uh, Moving on to slide
3: 19. Uh, Can I ask a question? Um, uh, Regarding the arm, uh, right now it's controlled inside. Do you have any provisions for having it being controlled by the astronaut at the end of the arm like most earthbound cherry pickers? Uh, yes,
0: uh, it, it's, it's certainly in discussion to have command and control from the ground, from inside the habitat, and there's also um, discussion underway for voice control from, uh, from outside. On slide 19 for EDA operations, it's just showing uh, the ability to manipulate crew and freeing their hands to then manipulate larger payloads. Um, On to slide 20, uh, support to science. Um, This is an image of Dexter or or the SPDM on the ISS deploying a smaller satellite payload, as an example, and then moving on to slide 21. Um, For additional support to science, uh, ESXR can support, can host and support science experiments and not only service them but deploy them. And the image to the right is an image from SSL and uh, a very recent um, hosted payload assembly and successful deployment. Um, And then we also have... uh, science uh, platform, which is down in the bottom lower right, that can be scaled to suit and has the ability to host a number of payloads. Um, On slide 22, uh, additional science support, there's also been studies that have been funded by the Canadian Space Agency to look at uh, lunar sample return and human-assisted lunar sample return. And the notion that samples would be collected on the surface of the Moon um, launched up into the orbit of the Gateway and then using the DSXR to capture the sample preservation uh, modules and uh, put them into an airlock or or another safe location, and the use of a uh, lunar sample tool uh, in part is to deal with possible contamination due to the, the dust on the lunar surface. Um, now, moving on to slide 23, uh, intravehicular robotics, or, or what we call IVR, um, shows some of our early analysis of uh, bringing the, the small dexterous arm inside the gateway. So the small arm that that was introduced in some of the earlier slides is shown in the left and the right image doing uh, general uh, inspection and servicing of of the equivalent of uh, a science rack. Um, Additional investigation includes transferring of payloads from element to element, and the middle view is also of a glove box with with smaller manipulators that support um, science or or repair. on slide twenty four, uh, we uh, reviewed uh, a large array of data of crew availability on the ISS and we broke it down by category of uh, sleep rest, eat, science utilization, exercise maintenance, and so on and broke down the percentage um, hours spent doing those activities, and then we further went on to state what activities they do could be addressed with the current concepts. But so showing science utilization is yes, maintenance is yes, housekeeping is yes, cargo operations is yes, outfit and resupply, stowage management and progress, load and unload. Um, which results in approximately four and a half hours of a given day. Um, an IVR robot could augment that of a crew member or do those tasks when, during an untended period. And then highlighted in red um, is also an interesting finding in that roughly three-quarters of the time uh, are devoted to, to the crew themselves and their health and well-being, and and their, their daily ongoing activities. So three-quarters of their time are really devoted uh, to each other and themselves, and then the remaining 25 percent to the station. And I think that also speaks to um, a need for having uh, robots inside the Gateway and other future systems.
4: Yeah. Uh, on this to is, uh, Paul? This is, uh, or is it Dan? I apologize. Um, oh, it's Paul. Paul well, this is Harley, um, to be a bit harsh and to, to make a, a comment sort of an extremist on on this chart just to, to make a case, um, it looks like, and I'm going to exaggerate a bit, um, it looks like uh, the robot the robot arm and possibly other types of robots there could do everything the astronauts do except sleep and eat. Which begs the question that uh, from your point of view, maybe a bit of philosophy, whatever, how how much longer will it be um, before you see robots entirely replacing humans on a facility such as Gateway? In terms of occupation, uh, sustainability, living and working, um, and uh, on a say the lunar surface or the Martian surface, robots can't place can't replace a human for living but this looks like you're on your way toward replacing humans um, in this particular facility.
3: Uh, I don't
0: don't reach the same conclusion, but I'm also coming from a place where uh, haptics and artificial intelligence um, have quite a ways to go, um, and and even just, just general... Um, locomotion capability. I think there's actually quite a ways to go. Um, be, is, this is basically framing it of, of, of what is addressable, and then I think there's there's a, a path of development. that then to, another way of putting it is that this is saying that there's a market, but now there's work to do to address that market.
4: In any case, yeah. Let's let's continue. It's 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 a very interesting chart. It gives one um, uh, um, some food for thought. But yeah, please continue, guys.
0: Okay, moving on to slide twenty-five. Are they're just images on the right of um, soft cargo uh, in the middle view? Uh, a crew member doing cleaning, and in the bottom. Uh, A crew member, I think, doing some form of servicing. And some of the tasks have already been defined, but there's some that that go starting from item six down. So demonstration technologies, um, having uh, manipulation or or, or robotics inside to further extend the capabilities, um, as we just discussed, Harley, like in in terms of of haptics and, and sensory perception and artificial intelligence. Um, These would be fantastic platforms to to test out ideas. Um, Unplanned contingency operations, uh, telerobotic medicine. I'll I'll show a view in a a minute. I'll jump to that in a second. And then also just the idea of further supporting repair um, in situ. And so it could be down to the circuit card assembly level or looking at shop replaceable units. so
3: can you just the, go ahead? Uh, can you describe how the internal arm gets around? I see a little bit in the graphic on the previous slide or two slides, but not real clear. And and what is common with that with the external one? So,
0: uh, on slide twenty-three, with the two graphics, uh, we're currently proposing a mobility aid. And the mobility aid would be um, some some sort of guide rail or, or small transport system that would go the the, the longitudinal axis of, of a module. Um, we're doing studies right now to go from um, docking interface to docking interface, so going from element to element where it would walk off and, and grab onto something else. But our, our current architecture is that it has... Um, the same robotically compatible grapple fixtures on the outside, they would have to also be located on the inside. One of the initial snippings so sort of would just be... the end
3: effectors. that's common?
0: Uh, it's the same manipulator.
3: So this is to the end of the arm or part of the arm?
0: So it the, looks like
3: it has to be shorter.
0: So so if you recall on the introduction slide of what DSXR r is, there's a large arm and a small one?
3: Okay, got it. Thanks. Uh,
0: it, it's the small one that would have the ability to, to go in and out of gateway. I take you back
3: to um,
0: slide eight? If you go to slide eight, there's, there's two robot arms, it's the large one and the small one.
3: So the XDA is the internal one? Or it Could be the internal one?
0: Could be the internal one. So it's roughly okay. uh, just short of a two meter class manipulator. Does that answer your question?
3: It does, thank you.
0: Okay, I'm on slide 26. Uh, collaborative Telerobotics. So, uh, here at MDA, we, we've had the opportunity over the last uh, decade or more to, to spin off what we've learned from the space station robotics and work with some pretty amazing surgeons and um, medical device companies to take advantage of that. So on the right-hand side is an image uh, called NeuroArm, and it's a microsurgical manipulator that can uh, be teleoperated by a surgeon in another room. Uh, it is MR compatible. And what you see, and it might be a little bit difficult, but there's there's nurses and assistant surgeons working at the work site at the same time. So they they work together. So there could be a, a surgeon driving the manipulator from a distance and another surgeon on site, um, both working in the same workspace and working together. Uh, The surgeon also has the the ability to grab the manipulator and and relocate it or reposition it as needed. The image on the right is a more current technology that we are developing with a company called Synaptive Medical, where they are also doing uh, brain surgery through very small openings, and the surgical tools have um, markers that the six-degree-of-freedom manipulator follows and tracks. It has a camera, so the surgeon is looking up at the screens that are that are enlarged considerably. They're magnified, and as the tools and the entry port move around, uh, the robotic arm follows, and, and it's saving um, hours and hours per procedure, allowing the, the surgeon to sort of forget about the manipulator that's working. Um, at times, rate, rate adjacent their own ear.
3: Uh, I so Comment: The uh, the U.S. military is finding uh, significant difficulties dealing with the bandwidths that are required for uh, uh, teleoperated surgery. So it's it's uh, something to consider here as well as the time delay.
0: Yeah, we agree with that. We agree. Um, it's. It, it is similar though to the earlier question about being able to do autonomous free flyer capture and therefore there's a certain level of autonomous operation that's necessary to overcome that latency. Absolutely. Uh, on slide 27, uh, planning perception and autonomy, uh, this really speaks to efficiency and really what, is, what it takes to to take um, hours, weeks, and months off of the planning and execution of on-orbit tasks to date. And so enhancing situational awareness through latest technologies. Um, in-house, we are evaluating um, augmented and virtual reality technology and trying to incorporate them into automated mission planning and execution. And I'll expand on that a little bit. In the following slides, on on slide 28, um, just increasing productivity um, and dealing with either loss of signal or or high latency situations, um, having higher levels of autonomy where where systems can go off and, and conduct the operation um, during periods of, of no sing, of no signal, I think is essential and more essential the further one travels from Earth. Um, it's it's uh, demonstrated every day with the Curiosity rover on Mars. And then uh, the notion of variable autonomy. So um, teleoperation is, is very important and, and speaks to to the last uh, speaker's question. Um, but as is, is higher levels of autonomy and the ability to move through all those different layers of, a, of autonomous operation, like obviously closing a, a loop um, around a, a motor and, and servoing a motor is one form of autonomy and having a, a tele um, teleoperated robot by, by a person is another and then going and abstracting to a higher level to an activity level saying, I want this payload moved from point A to point B. Go figure it out. Um, is all work in progress right now and, the, and a lot of the programs that Dan mentioned um, that CSA are funding are, are further um, evolving that. But so it, it's the efficiency is gained not only in having the appropriate tools that automatically generate the data products that you need and trust in that they're valid and that the data that you're getting is is the appropriate data, as well as then sending high-level commands to an executive computer on board the gateway that can decompose those commands in a a safe and reliable manner and essentially um, take the place of the hand controller commands that a a teleoperator would normally do and say, no, we don't need a hand controller. Um, The executive computer will will make those decisions and they'll be trusted that they're safe. There will be all these safety features that if the loss of signal is too long or it goes through a certain um, series of deliberative commands, that it'll it'll stop and, and it'll wait until signals resumed. But but there's a whole spectrum of, um, of autonomy and, and growth and, and, and opening to future forms of artificial intelligence as well. Um, moving on to slide nine, um, really comes back to having the appropriate capability to go further and further away from home uh, on the pathway to Mars and to have a uh, manipulation system that can provide essential information through inspection. It can repair things. Um, it's a multi purpose tool that can support crew um, with the potential to support them both inside and outside the gateway. Uh, to exploit commonality, uh, to reduce the necessary resources required. And other uh, self reliant features just include enhanced situational awareness. Uh, through, through those different technologies, such as HoloLens, um, the built-in planning and training capability. So for the crew to, to log on and have the exact same interface that, uh, that ground control would have, that uh, is, they can run simulations and they, they can do a whole series of um, projected plans uh, using the autonomous planning tools, run them in a simulated environment before conducting them on the real hardware, and ultimately uh, ease of use and just making it simpler to use so that the autonomy is working in the background and it's, it's trusted. So with that, um, for slide 30, I'd like to, to hand it back to Dan Ray.
2: Thank you very much, Paul. I think we're we're right on time. Uh, so this is our, our final slide, and I'd like to step back for a moment and just share with folks that the the original gateway concept, the original cislunar outpost started as a pretty much a submarine. There was no EVA, there was no external robotics, and it took quite some time for the, uh, the partners to come around to the, the realization that uh, for something to last 15 years like that on orbit, um, there's really no getting around the fact that you need a, a robotic manipulator system. And in particular, not only for inspection, but to be able to deploy the science payloads that are going to be delivered over the lifetime of the system. So, those are baseline planned tasks. Uh, they're highly critical. And we also expect reconfiguration, assembly, EVA support, maintenance, repair. And as Paul described, uh, a large percentage of unforeseen needs will, will uh, justify the robotic system. If it's a multi-purpose system in and of itself, and it's limited essentially by the tools that uh, at its disposal. At its disposal, and there's no um, uh, given our capability to deliver new tools on orbit. Uh, we expect the capabilities of the system can can grow to follow, not only from a software perspective but a hardware perspective with with new challenges. The Uh, The other key point besides the the critical need for the robotic system in an outpost like this are that uh, there's currently a lot of overhead with um, human spaceflight. Having a system in operation proximity to a crew member or proximity to really life-sustaining assets on the gateway requires an extremely safe system. And we're able to do that today. We just want to be able to do it better. This will involve things like um, verifying that the the system will verify itself that the model of the gateway is correct with 3D scanning capabilities before doing any kind of task. There'll be automatic visual servoing as it comes into a to a standard interface, verifying that that interface, the markers on that one, correspond to what's in, it, in the model, for example. Um, also, reduced DVA so a self-deployable, self-maintainable system. These are, I guess, the five big uh, advances that we're looking to with, uh, with respect to our our next step in, in, in space robotic servicing. All of these capabilities that will be demonstrated in the cislunar environment we feel are critical for the uh, past to Mars and future destinations. Someday when our planetary systems are... Multinational. There will be families of robotic systems on the surface. Uh, Any kind of outpost that has to operate for a long time will have internal and external robotic systems, mobile manipulators. I think. uh, Well, I don't want to go back to to the previous question, even though it's uh, very tempting. Harley, the I think. humans in the loop are absolutely vital for not just sleeping, <laughs> but also for, for inspiration and for making the connection to to the taxpayers and the humans on Earth to be able to share the experience. But I'll leave it at that. The two final bullets, um, we've been building on our ISS heritage. We're going to continue to, to test developments on the space station. We have plans for an autonomy demonstration, potentially even leading up to autonomous capture at some point, if all goes well, uh, on the space station. Uh, we're working with uh, international partners, not only the ISS partners, but the isac G partners that Kathy talked about on the path to Moon and Mars, preparing options for our government. Um, and finally, the capabilities that we discussed are not only for human spaceflight, but uh, someday there will be... Uh, Tow trucks and robotic repairmen in LEO and GEO. And these technologies are all very relevant with potential spin offs also on Earth. We didn't dive too much into the uh, details of the robotic system concept and uh, all did a great job of summarizing that. We tried to focus on really the need for robotics and, and uh, the breadth of capabilities that it brings to something like the cis-lunar hat. Thank you very much for your attention.
1: Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.